Welcome to the Blocking Charge Cast, round one of the NCAA Tournament Edition, where uh, things have certainly happened to uh, everybody's team in the Big Ten. And I'm going to cut off the narratives right from the beginning. Uh, once again, this is Steve Braun with Thumpasaurus. I'm here with Andrew Krzyzewski and our own Evan Wildcat. I'm going to cut off a whole bunch of memes and narratives talking about the Big Ten as an entity performing well and how Big Ten fans are uh, in shambles. And it's like, now, actually, the only Big Ten fans that are in shambles are the ones whose team was in the tournament, and they all got limited respite from everybody else, almost everybody else losing. I was thinking to myself, you know, I even one time wrote a column about how much I wanted everybody's team to lose and hated them all during the NCAA tournament because I was pissed off my team wasn't in it. And so when we had this long stretch of tournaments that we weren't in, the Big Ten could never bother to have a first two rounds this bad. This is just like, if this is the perfect time to not make the tournament if you're a Big Ten team. Boy, is that peanut gallery just, I mean, they probably cleaned out the concession stand by now. I'm having a great NCAA tournament. That's break <laughs> one a game. I mean, it's been, I've drunk a lot of beer. I, uh, it's been I just pleasurable on all accounts. I think the only complaint that I have is that Michigan is still playing. <laughs> I've suffered wounds so deep that Kansas getting nuked from orbit did nothing for me. <laughs> yeah, shit, man. I mean, my team lost first and in an infuriating fashion, but it was 18 hours later when Ohio State was the next team to just, just cleat their own dick. And I have to admit it helped. It really helped. So, yeah, I don't know. It's only like this national media thing where so many of them are the same guys who are always – blathering about how good sec football is like i really don't think anyone thinks in terms of what like that you know i'll often see the comment thrown out there that oh you know i root for the big 10 teams during a tournament i I don't know who these people are but i think they're making that up and there's no reason to um so again you know the the good thing about this first weekend is again unless you're a michigan fan and if if that's the case let's be honest you're not listening to this podcast because it's about basketball right now um you, you might be miserable, yes, because either your team missed a tournament or got knocked out in the first weekend, but misery loves company, and you got plenty of it. You know what else misery loves? The great taste of Jepson's Malord. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I, this is an occasion where I wouldn't blame you for that. I, we in, in the past, after I don't necessarily understand making your discomfort worse by choosing to put it in your body, but... It's in, making it physically tangible to me. Sure. In this particular case, I think I, I think I do get it. And he's just pulling straight out of the bottle. Um, so I actually have a story related to that because I had a friend who had bet me on the outcome of the West Ham Leeds game. So soccer talk very briefly, but he as a Leeds fan was feeling very confident, not aware that the, my hammers are, are certainly you're a bound ignore the three zero lead. They just blew to Arsenal, please. Um, and we bet a shot of our own concoction on the outcome of the game. And I figured, well, Mullort is probably fine by itself. I don't think he'd ever had it. And then I said, you know what? No, if he's dumb enough to bet me on the outcome of the West Ham Leeds game, he really deserves to suffer. <laughs> so, Steve, you're familiar with the uh, the Prairie Fire as a shot? Yes. Well, now there is a shot called the Dumpster Fire. <laughs> oh, boy. Just Mullort with a nice, uh, a nice Tabasco float. So, 
you I could I could be a fan of any number of teams if you don't already know what team I'm in that's the thing if for some reason this is one of your first episodes of our podcast first off welcome we love you but second there's so many teams that I could be a fan of right now there's so many oh yeah lots lots of cut and I haven't even said anything particularly specific Nope, we're gonna walk through it, and there, there were many, there were some similarities. There were some themes that we're gonna play on, and actually, that's kind of how we're gonna wrap up later. Is I have a I have a hot take about the cause of our conference's misery that I think plays to my type a little bit. For those of you who know my complaining proclivities during games, oh, but, well, gonna, I have similar theories. I have, but no, I have evidence. I have evidence. I have proof. I'm gonna present my case, and the people will judge. I mean, you don't you don't get to judge me for this, and I'm not saying that this is the sole cause or even the biggest cause, but I think it matters. I have evidence and I'm, and I'm going to present. Well, I'll share my later, later as well. That's gonna but be, that's gonna let's be our get down. Let's get down. Let's break it down team by team, starting with the team that didn't shit the bed, although they, uh, they sure did have a bit of a scare in fact that Cameron Thomas of LSU lit up Michigan in the first half. What ultimately ended up happening was that, exactly what I what I said would happen in that LSU had 79 points in their SEC tournament final to Alabama zero points off the bench that's not really a recipe for an eight to upset a one no and you know the only thing that made you think that was kind of possible is that Michigan plays a similar thing where mostly because of the livers injury but even before that they weren't running a particularly deep bench either and so you're a little concerned because, again, LSU with Trendon Watford and Cam Thomas, um, Javante Smart, they have these guys who athletically are very difficult to match up with. If you're playing your guys' big minutes and they're playing their guys' big minutes, you might be a little bit worried about maintaining that athletic matchup. But, I mean, the other thing that came through in this game, a couple things first, is that Michigan's got – basically all of Michigan's major players are capable of carrying them on a given night because – in this game, I mean, going into the tournament, do you think Michigan wins after the first round, really, if their two most important players are Eli Brooks and Shawnee Brown? Probably not. You probably do you think Michigan wins after the first round in the tournament if they if they draw something higher than, say, Ken Palm 22? If they, say, draw Ken Palm 9 as a fucking 8 seed? Yeah. Yeah, although, uh, you know... With, it's with becoming the, a little clearer, folks. We'll get to you in time. We're doing Michigan. <laughs> right. So, uh, the other thing, honestly, you know, we commented going into this tournament the last time we convened that Juwan Howard did not exactly bathe himself in glory during the Big Ten tournament, but I do think he was an obvious advantage over Will Wade, who, uh, man... I. He's, he really is just doing his dollar bill self-impression, isn't he? Where he's well, gonna, his he's name. Gonna get the talent, he's going to do what it takes to get the talent. And then his very name implies a willingness to, to sink it. to whatever level, you know, to just <laughs> go through the muck and the swamp. <laughs> will Wade. Is he going to? Well, yeah. It's like, is, is our coach going to go into the dirty waters if it's necessary? Yeah, he will Wade. So, <laughs> uh, brother. Um. And so, yeah, Michigan had no real trouble in their 16 seed game. They, you know, LSU tightened it up a little bit at the end, but again, you, I guess a certain quality opponent, you expect that. And now looking at the remain, the only thing that gives you any pause for Michigan is they really have the one corner of the bracket where there's still plenty of chalk left for them to contend with. They've got the four seed Florida state in their matchup, but honestly, 
we would, I would say a lot of the same things about Florida State that we said about LSU. Tons of hyper-athletic guys, a couple of NBA lottery prospects, but a coach whose in-game contribution is, is kind of like, well, is he going to get in his player's way today or not? Uh, and then elsewhere in their bracket, they do have Alabama, my beloved Nate Oates, please Nate, Nate to MSU, who just bombed Maryland out of the tournament and are capable of putting up 90 to 100 on any given night. Um, and then, of course, oh, wait, the three seed was Texas because, <laughs> you know, who, who, of course, would have picked Texas to make a deep run in the NCAA tournament? Nobody could have been so no, stupid. No, no, uh, no. Seriously. You know, the, the funny thing about Texas, the, charge cast. the funny thing about Texas is that we've certainly made a joke about somebody coming back with more eligibility with a with, you know, a big nose and mustache disguise and a stupid fake name. How about Flo Thamba? Flohamed Thamba for Texas. Can't say anyone would be missing him in the NBA. I, you know, that's we talk about the bust. <laughs> um, I mean, so Shaka Smart uh, had just an, an an incredible meltdown. Uh, my brother-in-law is a Texas fan, and he, he he said, "I have no idea how you lose to a team that shoots twenty-eight percent, but we did it." <laughs> it took some doing. It's. And, it, you know, it's also one of those things where it is fair to wonder if you're Texas and you're a three seed, how did you put us against one of the, you know, what other, maybe two or three other teams in the tournament field who would have more of a bloodlust to defeat you than Abilene Christian would, you know? Yeah, funny thing that, that in-state <laughs> bloodlust thing, funny goddamn thing that, it's a really yeah, cute storyline, isn't it? We'll get, we'll get to we'll it. We'll get to you. What? What's wrong? In due time. Um, but anyway, that concludes the good news portion of the podcast. And we're probably about 3% of the way into what we're going to talk about. So, so we're a bunch of 3%ers over here. Oh, fucking hell, man. There's always something I stumble into with you, isn't it? So everyone get your funeral attire on because now it's time to talk about the rest of the conference. And I wore all black to work today because, of course, a bunch of Michigan fans uh, have come out of the woodwork over the last few weeks. And uh, I did a very, very good job all day. I looked so goddamn busy that nobody asked me about basketball. <laughs> I mean, I was just tremendous at looking busy all day. I actually was fairly busy, but I really stepped up my looking busy game. Do you have the Illini flag at half mast outside your home right now? It's actually, I don't know if you noticed it, but it's ripped to shreds. Um, Not for anything I did, but because it just at the old house kept getting caught on like a nail that was sticking out of the gutter. So it, (laughs) The distressed it, line, I think. Yeah, you know. Well, anyway. and the Rutgers red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our Illini flag was uh, still there and also a little bit over there, waving in a different direction. <laughs> so, again, if you haven't pieced this together by now, Michigan advances this week 16. The eight other Big Ten teams are all out before the round of 16. And I kind of eyeballed this and I wonder if you guys will agree that there's basically to me acceptable losses based on your own team's expectations and the opponent and then unacceptable losses. Um, I think certainly Wisconsin, Rutgers, and Maryland, I would view these as acceptable losses. Rutgers and Maryland are both 10 seeds who won a game and then lost to the two in their region. Wisconsin being a nine seed ended up facing the one in the round of 32. Totally understandable if you lose that game. The others we'll get to in a minute. So let's we'll start with Wisconsin then. Um, looked as about as impressive as they have all year in that first round game against North Carolina, a team that 
although they're not necessarily, they haven't necessarily put it together in a win-loss column, every bit as talented as they ever have been. So for Wisconsin to, I mean, really, you're talking about a couple of senior guards in Trice and Davison who combined for, what, like 50-something points between the two of them. And the fact that UNC couldn't come up with anything like that, I mean, it was, it was only after halftime that they realized, oh, we have this hyper-athletic big guy who can both finish against anyone Wisconsin will defend him with and effectively pass out a double team. Maybe we should try running offense through him a little bit. By then it was too late. And North Carolina still didn't play a lick of defense on the perimeter. When, I mean, when Brad Davison scores 29 points on you, I mean, it's, you go home and you have a, a look in the mirror and you think about what you did at the same time. There was the one he was free throw line extended, probably 19, 20 feet out and hit this running fadeaway jumper from the wing. And it was just like, okay, well, fuck you. He's uh, you know, every, uh, you know, every white kid from Maple Grove has his January 6th. So it's, uh, what are you going to do? It's, and it, it was impressive. I mean, look, the guy shot the lights out of the gym, but at some point you're also looking at North Carolina thinking like, and you don't, you don't adjust or you just, you're going to let Trice and Davis and just bomb you out of existence. To... Yeah. Their ball screen defense was horrendous all game. So mm-hmm. they, I mean, Trice and Davison are good shooters, but if you give them the looks they got, they're great shooters. And that's, you saw then the difference between that and what they got in the second round with Baylor, who we commented before the tournament, you know, there's certainly, they were certainly a popular upset pick because they have gone on a little, they had gone on a little bit of a swoon defensively after their COVID pause from where they were earlier in the season, but they had that capability in them and they absolutely rediscovered that form against Wisconsin, where they've got all these guards who are six, 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 seven with big wingspan and they force 14 turnovers from Wisconsin, which is not a team that is usually very careless with the ball and going into it even a little further, you saw that Baylor's length on the wings really bothered Wisconsin's backcourt because Trice Davison and Johnny Davis, the three guards who got most of the minutes combined for 10 turnovers between them and shot obviously a dramatically less efficient percentage than they did against UNC. And that was really the difference in the game. Add into that fact that Baylor shot almost 50% from three themselves, and you've got a losing formula. You've got a formula for kind of a non-competitive game. So again, no dishonor in that for Wisconsin necessarily. If you look at their season as a whole, you think, uh, look, they brought back an entire Big Ten champion team from last year. What exactly didn't work quite as well this year? Well, the rest of the conference also got better around them. So that kind of is what it is. I mean, there's nothing going in the banners this year or in the rafters this year, but they're maybe the team that is in the weirdest position because they played such a senior heavy rotation. Normally you would think, man, they're going to have a major rebuild on their hands, but the eligibility clock isn't a thing for the season. So they could very well run the entire team back and just like we talked about last time, you know, have a team of 26 year old seniors out there. Why not? Most of these guys are not serious NBA prospects. So that's kind of a team that, that's going to have the biggest range of possibilities for next year. But anyway, generally speaking, what I've seen is that a lot of the people that are seniors seem to be treating it like they're seniors. It's kind of like we're like, I keep having to check to see if the eligibility clock is still frozen because everybody's acting like it's not. Yeah. But again, like until you officially hear something like, you know, Josh Langford and Izzo both seem to agree that he's not playing at MSU next year. So that's kind of resolved, but Unless and until I hear officially from these players, I assume their status is up in the air. I don't think I haven't even heard of a deadline for when they have to decide if they're using it or not. Presumably the coaches are going to want to know. 
but so yeah, I mean, to kind of put a bow on Wisconsin, they did God's work in in bombing North Carolina out of the tournament. For, I saw something today, first time since 1979 that Duke, Kansas, Kentucky, and North Carolina are all out of the tournament before the Sweet 16. So as rough a week as rough a week and weekend as it was for the Big Ten, there's you know a little bit of a silver lining in there. No, well, that is that is one of the nice things to look at this bracket and say you know who are the who are the blue bloods left in this conversation? I mean, it's and there's certainly the, the kind of the separate debate I think about well what's going to get eyeballs and stuff for the for the final four and the finals. But I mean, fuck that for one. I don't care. Like it's a I'm a Northwestern fan. It's nice to see everybody lose. Um, and at the same time, you know, you Gonzaga, Baylor. I mean, do we have we have Houston left as a two seed? And Theoretically, big Alabama. Names in, yeah, theoretically, big names in Michigan and Alabama. But again, are, are we thinking of those names as basketball attention getters? No, I don't think we really are. Which yeah. it's not that Michigan doesn't have the quality, right? Uh, it's that they just can't compete with their own terrible football program. Um, which I don't get because, again, you know, Michigan's in the Sweet 16 for the fourth tournament in a row by any measure in the last five years, they've done more on the hardcore on the hard floor than their football team has done in 15 years, but they've also done more than just about anybody in the big 10 has. Yeah. No, there's that. that, Um, And it always seems to happen on accident too. So it's, it's just, it's just lovely. I mean, I I said like at a point in the middle of yesterday that, you know, the three teams I thought were the most likely to win are Michigan, Kansas, and Syracuse win it all because that's descending the order of how much I would die. Uh, at the bottom of that list, the team with the least chance to win. Do you know how little it would annoy me if Gonzaga won? Like, I would be so not annoyed that there's no, no, no way no. they're going to win. No. no way. No. Can't possibly happen. Well, yeah. speaking of can't possibly happen, Rutger. Oh, the so Gers acquitted itself well in round one. They did. Yeah. Making yeah, drama. So they, they did. They. I, I can't be... No, you know, I was going to say I can't be upset with Rutgers' performance here because, look, they made the tournament for the first time in 30 years. They won a tournament game for the first time in almost 40 years, but they should still be alive right now. <laughs> and that game against Houston locked up. They had a 10-point lead midway through the second half, but their offense, man, their offense is so bad. They're, ne- they're never going to be anything more than they are right now, which is a middle-of-the-table Big Ten team. And, hey, look, from where they've been – that's great. But we've talked about this in, in past seasons of this program that to take that next step forward and break into the upper crust is really difficult to do. They're not, their defense has gotten them about as far as they can. They got to get better in the other half of the court. They got to get a plan. They got to get some shooters. They got to make some kind of ball movement happen. The last five minutes of the game, they scored two points. You can't do, I, look, I know Houston's good defensively. But I mean, two points, like you've got to have some kind of pet play you can go to. They've got, I mean, they've got guys like Ron Harper, um, Montez Mathis, Geo Baker. They ought to be able to find somebody who can either get their own bucket or create enough of a matchup problem, enough of a defensive problem that he draws a double and somebody gets open. Like there's got to be some kind of way they can offensively put pressure on a team because even though they played with the lead for most of the game, Again, from about that, you felt from about that seven or eight minute mark on, they had such a hard time scoring that the pressure was all on them, even though they were playing with the lead. It, it's, it was a strange dynamic. 
but with these teams that struggle to score, you get that sometimes where you're in the lead, but it feels like you're down by 10 points. Like that's the difference in intensity. I don't know. That's maybe that's just me saying it. You know, we, we get a lot of contributions from our Rutgers contributors who tuned in for every second the whole way. Um, so what was odd for me with it was, I mean, or I think what kind of just was strange to see, but what definitely was kind of a, you know, the uh, one of the trap structures fell into is just the offensive rebounding that they gave up. I mean, that's something where you, you, I don't associate Rutgers with, you know, for all the things I expect them to have a shitty offense. I expect Paul Mulcahy to slap the floor and probably become the new Brad Davis and checker of men's testicular health. But I we called that last year, I think, but no, 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 no. Early this year, early this year. Oh, for, it's the, with the headband, I think really is what's uh, what gives it away, but it's, it's in the last four minutes of the game since you bring it up. I think they gave up four offensive rebounds, if I'm remembering that correctly, that led, I want to say, directly to five. It was either five or seven Rutgers points, and I think 16 offensive rebounds for the game. I mean, you that's what Northwestern to Rutgers. That's not what Rutgers gives up to anybody. I mean, that it was it just you saw the kind of – the arms get a little bit heavy, the, the eyes get a little bit wide, and just – Maybe that's the next step for you know Pico's crew. Is now that they've been there, the hope is if you're a Rutgers fan next year, they you know act like they've been there a little bit and really can take care of business. Yeah, it, I think there's certainly something to be said about the experience. Um, Houston has been a a strong program for a handful of years now. I think ultimately Rutgers ceiling next year depends in large part on whether Harper comes back or not. I've seen him pretty consistently mocked in like the 20s in the NBA draft if he were to go. You would assume with his dad having been a pro as long as he was, probably doesn't need the money, but you always want to go as early as you can. So that'll be an interesting thing for them. I mean, that certainly, I think, impacts their ceiling next season. They could potentially have a lot coming back. Again, I feel it feels like this is going to be the most tumultuous offseason in any of our recollection in terms of transfers, um, guys leaving to play professionally. I think there's going to be more churn than than you could reasonably estimate, but... Uh, yeah. I, so on the one hand, I, I can't be disappointed with Rutgers season. It's still, again, barring what they might've done last year. And we've commented on that many times for many teams, they still did get back to the tournament and it still does feel like things are heading in the right direction with Peichel here. But if they're going to take another step forward, they've got to do something better on offense. Um, now I, we're going to talk now about the team that I thought played perhaps the, the weirdest tournament game I remember seeing certainly in the last few years, maybe even longer than that. Um, Maryland Terrapins in their first round matchup during the 10 seven game with UConn. UConn was a very popular pick for deep runs. And we talked about this last week, basically because they have this James book Knight who reminds a lot of people of guards. UConn has had in the past that have taken them on deep runs. Flabaz uh, Thapier, Flemba Thawker to yeah, use well, the Texas I mean, model. The thing is, one though, of those words you can't say on a podcast. I, <laughs> I had never seen, <laughs> I had never seen him before. And then when I tuned in and watched the tail end of this game, and when I saw him, I was like, "Well, did Gary Harris secretly re-enroll and go to <laughs> UConn? Does he look that much like an owl? They look uncannily alike, man. Like even kind of like even the facial hair is kind of the same as what I recall Harris having when he was at MSU. It, it was." I was like, this, this is strange. I, but I, I didn't know who to talk to. Like even you guys who I frequently ping during games, I'm like, they're not going to remember what Gary Harris looks like, you know, seven, eight years. Ago. So um, I remember him looking like an owl way more than anybody has any right to prominent eyes. Yes. Uh, but, but anyway, so 
we pointed out previewing this game that look, he's a good guard, but Maryland's as well equipped to deal with him as anyone because they can put Daryl Morcell on him. And sure enough, Book Knight was terribly inefficient. But the thing about this game that I've I've never seen anything like this is UConn obliterated Maryland on the glass. They and they did absolutely nothing with it. Um, more offensive rebounds than defensive. Yeah, and well, and almost as many offensive rebounds as Maryland had total rebounds. I think the difference was something like four or five. They had 22 offensive rebounds by the end of the game, and they they just got nothing out of it. One of their starting guards, Tyrese Martin, had a had a stat line that I was looking at. I was like, this can't be right. He had 11 rebounds, including seven offensive rebounds, and he shot one for 10 from the field. It, it was just mind blowing. I've never seen anything like that. Um, but Maryland, Maryland ends up winning this game because I don't think anyone pegged Eric Ayala as the best guard on the court in that game, but he certainly was in that game at least. And he's really come on towards the end of the game or the end of the season where between him and Wiggins, what we've wondered about Maryland for a while is, okay, they lost Colin and Smith from last year. Who's going to be their centerpiece guys going out? I mean, I don't think many of us, certainly outside of their fan base, thought of Ayala and Wiggins as being those guys. Maybe as seniors, they will be, though. You may, we may have to kind of recalibrate what we think of their roster as it is. Um, so anyway, they, they pull off the win that I don't think very many people had them getting. And then look, in the round of 32, they ran to an absolute buzzsaw in Alabama. This is a, a team that shot and hit 16 threes on almost 50% shooting. Um, I think Bama put up, what, 96, 98 points, something like that. That's just a case of, look, sometimes you're the windshield and sometimes you're the bug. Um, running into a team shooting like that, you're not, you're going to, there's no way to keep up. So that was it for Maryland. Well, I mean, again, they won a tournament game in a clear rebuilding year, made the tournament, won a game. Are you disappointed with how it turned out? Sure. You don't like to get, you know, boat raced out of the tournament because they scored almost 80 themselves and still the game was never close. The thing is with with Mark Turgeon and is this what six out of seven uh, six out of the last seven years that Maryland has been in the second round? I mean, there's not much spectacular beyond that, but oh boy, you know. And that seems to be the debate among Maryland fans: is is that enough for you know the story tradition that is Maryland basketball? It's I, I I would as a Maryland fan, I would look at this and be happy that you saw finally Wiggins and Ayala come alive. I mean, Wiggins with 27 in the in the second game and, and Ayala with just that great game in the first and how Wiggins shot, I think four of six from deep in the first game too. But yeah, it's, it, I think it's just a question of, do they, are they willing to tolerate, you know, round to 32 ish kind of stuff? Or do they have, or do they have high standards as Minnesota? <clears throat> right. Um, a persistent knock against Turgeon has been that a fair amount of the time, the big time recruits, impressive impact guys he gets don't necessarily get much better over the time that they're there, but Got a pretty strong counter argument here with first Daryl Morcell and then also with Ayala and Wiggins, the guys who are really the pillars of the team this year. They've taken huge steps forward from where they were last year, where they were at best sporadic contributors in supporting roles. So, yeah, I mean, are they enough to be the foundation of another tournament team? No, they're going to need more than that. Um, but I think this, I have to, if, if I was a Maryland fan, knowing that I'm stuck with Turgeon certainly for next year, because I don't think you fire him in a what was admittedly a rebuilding year where they do make the tournament and win a game. I don't think there's no way they're firing him. And you got to have a damn good reason to fire a coach in, you know, pandemic year. Everything's weird. Yeah, for sure. So 
I, I look, this to me is a little bit of, it, it pushes the scale a little bit towards the pro, on the pro con list of whether we're firing this guy or not. Okay, so we've covered the three teams who I think we probably all agree the losses they took while disappointing from those fan bases perspectives are at least understandable, acceptable, whatever term you want to use. We'll pivot now to the one game that I think could arguably fit into either category. I know where I stand and I think everybody else does too. Um, Michigan State. So I want to hear from both of you guys. Am, am I the asshole or is it is it like the thing from Big Lebowski where I'm not wrong, I'm just an asshole? I mean, it's certainly not as disappointing a loss as the two seed loss <laughs> to Middle Tennessee. Okay. So if that's where the bar is being set, then <laughs> going to have a tough time getting up no. there. But uh, I have not argued, nor do I think anybody else has, that the, I'm not arguing this is the worst tournament loss of Izzo's career. That's, a, as you say, a pretty goddamn high bar to clear. No, that's not what I've been saying. What I've been saying, and I don't think I'm wrong in saying this, is look, the last tournament run Izzo went on that really impressed me, where he was really, he was, you know, oh, January, February, Izzo, April, May, like the shirts pe- that you see people wearing. I promise you they're real. Um, the last time I really felt that was true was 2015. That was the last. And what I mean by that is, does he take a team and whatever it is, get more than that out of them in the tournament? It has been six years now since he did. And I get that one of those tournament runs was wiped out. And I understand that I may well be accused of privilege here because there was a final four run in there. But again, I don't think he got more out of that team than should have reasonably been expected. Cassius Winston was an all American should have been a finalist for player of the year, but he wasn't. Um, and he also had Xavier Tillman, who's now a regular in the NBA after being a second round pick and was the defensive player of the year. That team had every right to go to the final four because he had a senior point guard, good veteran leadership around him, a deep bench. I mean, nevertheless, I mean, sometimes a final four run lays itself out for you and you can't help but steer straight into the fucking iceberg. We're oh, not yeah, talking no about you yet. I just, I, for goodness sakes, let's go back to the Malort. Sure. So, <laughs> so we'll talk, let's talk about the actual game then. So they get in the, in one of the first four games, they get matched up with UCLA, a team that in a way is kind of the polar opposite of MSU because MSU's statistical profile all here has been, look, they're pretty good on defense and their offense is pretty bad for a team of their profile. I mean, compared to all teams in division one, no, they're not terrible, but by a lot of measures, they're pretty bad. Um, UCLA by contrast has a good offense, but their defense was completely porous. So MSU ends up with an 11 point halftime lead and they fritter it away through a variety of means through a lot of the same things that I've been complaining about with my hall of fame legend coach for years. And again, I'm trying, I'm trying to keep perspective because when you're an 11 seed in a play in game, what do you really expect? Like you, you weren't that good. You barely snuck into the tournament. Um, but man, it, there's just so many of the same mistakes. And the reason that I've laid criticism on Izzo here is because even while recognizing this was not the most talented team he's worked with, and they had a lot of things to transition from last year, and they had this disruptive offseason, I still feel like this team was capable of more than he got out of it. That's when, I, that's when I feel it's appropriate to lay criticism on the coach. And it's completely fair to say in this game, look, Aaron Henry forgets to box a guy out on the free throw line with less than a minute to go. That gives UCLA two free points and lets him get to overtime. Like that's not Izzo having his best player forget to box out. Um, 
But man, I just, you know, three out of the last five tournaments here have been hideous first weekend exits that were completely inexcusable. I'm not bothering too much with the time they lost to a one seed Kansas that had a bunch of NBA players. I like, I'm not too bothered by that, but I think it's perfectly reasonable to argue that Izzo doesn't really have this magic tournament touch they did. And yes, I say that remembering that two years ago, they were in a final four because that team should have won it all. Um, so anyway, that's about all there is to say about it. Um, well, in that case, we're going to we're gonna advertise at you and then come back and get back into the juicier stuff. Um, it, Malort is a type of juice. I mean, it's a juice in the, in the sense that everything which you put in a bottle, which has arguably come from nature, could in a way be described as juice, correct? And we're back. So we've wrapped up the ones that were deemed acceptable, understandable, whatever you have it. Not I'm putting MSU in the borderline category. I, I don't think it's acceptable, but I understand how looking at what they actually were on paper, you could think that. So well, there's a big there's a big fat line between the acceptability of that loss and the acceptability of all the losses we're gonna talk about. You seem to have accepted it a lot better than I can conceive of, for instance. Well, again, remember relative expectations here. I mean, was I very, very angry in the moment? Oh, yeah. And it was also almost one in the morning on a work night. And I get a little cranky when it's late. So, huh, fortunately, I wasn't I angry at all. Yeah, you were. Uh, How could I be? There was, so, a very, there was a very different emotion. But again, we're, all, we're almost there. We're almost there and we'll get through that. Um, I did not have long to wait before I was joined in ignominy by, frankly, a much more visible uh, embarrassing loss by the conference. When the Ohio State Buckeyes, another another favorite for a deep run from this podcast, got gummed to death in overtime by Mouth Bob. Ken Palm 128 Mouth Bob. So no, this is not even remotely the same. But yes, Ken Palm 128 Mouth Bob, who did have, uh, let's see, 65 rated offense, 239 rated defense, 46th in adjusted tempo. Um, oh, here's a metric where they're top 10. Non-conference strength of schedule. They are number four in that rating. Top yeah. 10 raised for a completely fictional cause as well. Oral Bob. <laughs> sure. Mouth Bob. I'm still calling him Mouth Bob forever. I can't believe nobody else came up with that before. I don't, at least I haven't seen it. Again, I'm not as online as you guys are. So perhaps other people have beaten me to that by years. And if so... Sorry, it's, you know, it's, it's the equivalent of thinking of something later on that's been a product for decades, but you didn't know about it. So a quick glance at their season stats would have also told you that they were very much a two-man show offensively with the type of guy who can win you a tournament game like this in Max Abmus. I hope I'm saying that right. Ace, Ace-mas. <laughs> yes, really. Ace-mas. So I'm not saying it right. That B is pronounced like a C-E. See, that's just that's just spiteful. Um, Not as spiteful as Kevin O'Banner making sure they win no banner. Yeah, and so they spell his name without the apostrophe and with one N so that you would conclude it's like a Castilian name, but then no, it's Irish actually. So uh, <laughs> anyway, those two guys have led them in scoring all season and in this matchup, very much the same. They put 59 points in between the two of them. Nobody else for mouth bob got more than six and so that like at some point this becomes a game planning failure by ohio state because you see after a while that 
two, you know, three guys on the floor are not taking shots even. And yet they're still allowing these two guys to go off. I get that there's only so much you can do when they're making some difficult shots, but they all, there's also the fact that Ohio state had a miserable offensive night here, 16 turnovers, which, you know, was a minus 10 more Roberts only had six. And then they shoot five for 23 from three. And that's after they started the game going three out of four. So they missed 17 out of their last 19 three-point attempts. The screen for Dwayne Washington just stopped shooting the ball. I mean, holy shit. The I can't understand what – that's always one of those ones that I never understand why when you've got the advantage in bigness and athleticism, why you shoot so many threes. It is, it's, it's a difficult approach to understand because the other thing, the guy who I think gets lost in Ohio State's game plans sometimes this year was Justice Suing, who I was very impressed with in his games against Michigan State and in other games I watched him play. I thought he was kind of the key to their success. And granted, he didn't have a great shooting night either, but he also took, he took eight shots. Liddell took 15, had much better efficiency, and Washington took 21. So I've, I've commented in the past that Dwayne Washington looks like probably the best point guard of his class in the conference. I have lamented that Tom Izzo chose Foster Lawyer over him. There's certainly an argument that Michigan could have recruited him as well. He's from Grand Rapids, but he ends up going to Ohio State. Um, there, is a, there is very much a downside to a guy who plays hero ball, though, and you saw it in this game because, yeah, towards the end, plainly, there, there was no shot that he wasn't going to be willing to take. And look, I get when you're the primary ball handler, sometimes you're going to have to take bad shots. Your efficiency is not going to be great when you're, I mean, this is an overtime game. So there's 45 minutes available and he played 43. Presumably his legs are dead by the end of it. Uh, but it's not like Ohio state is a one man show. They have other options here. Liddell was quite efficient for most of the game. They got a decent contribution from CJ Walker as well, but you wouldn't know, like you would think looking at the shot numbers that they had the kind of imbalance that Oral Roberts did where they, have two guys who can reliably score and they have to be the ones who take all the shots, but that's not the case. And for Holtman not to put a little bit more of a leash on his point guard, I thought was a mistake on his part. And look, it, it has to be said, I, I'm only ever going to put so much criticism on college players, but it is true that Liddell and Washington kind of flinched in crunch time here. So here's how their last several possessions went in regulation. Liddell split a pair at the free throw line to give them a four point lead. And then here's what happens with Ohio State's remaining possessions in regulation. Washington turns it over. Liddell turns it over. Liddell gets fouled, but misses the front end of a one and one. And then Washington misses kind of a step back, jacked up three, or maybe it was a long two with about three seconds left. So although those two carried a lot of the load for him this year, that's a, that's a brutal finish. And the unfortunate thing about that, when, when a guy has, visible high profile mistakes like that is Ohio state had to make a police report after the game because of some threats that were made to Liddell by ostensible fans of the team, which is, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and disagree. I don't even know. I would say that that was degenerate gamblers because it's certainly possible because when, when you're a person and by degenerate gamblers, I don't mean people who lost their entire ass. I just mean, People who are assholes who lost a few hundy because that, I mean, I'm going kind of off nothing, but you got no reason to be invested in, in anything. And the reason I say that also is because of this 
this uh, audio clip I was finally able to find from, from my friend from, uh, from uh, some sports stations call-in of the week back in 2018 of, of a dude just going on this incredible tirade against Lovey Smith. Like, like, like just, I was proud, but it turns out it was just because like he had Illinois to cover against Penn state. And then they let them score 35 straight points in the fourth quarter and he couldn't believe it. So, uh, okay. So yeah, degenerate gamblers experience like uncontrollable anger on a level that I think is more likely to compel them to say those kind of things than a disappointed fan. It's entirely possible. I mean, when you add that to the fact that some of these were made from people who were in the building. And I don't know how many fans are actually able, like, you know, off the street fans are able to actually access the tournament. It's certainly a possibility, but whoever is, it's, it's obviously in, you know, <laughs> we get invested in these games. Sure we do, but you have to know when there's a line and ideally with amateur athletes, you're going to stop yourself several paces away from that line instead of vaulting over it. And then glancing back to see if maybe your toe is still on the acceptable side of it. So don't tweet at recruits. Don't tweet at players unless it's, hey, great job. We really appreciate what you've done here. And most of all, don't tweet. Yeah, that's honestly kind of the baseline lesson there is maybe just don't tweet. Um, so it's, it's fun. Yeah, you, and that- I talked, you and I talked about this and we disagreed. So I'm interested in getting a tiebreaker vote here. The praise for Chris Holtman at Ohio State has been pretty unanimous since he got there and justifiably so at least at first he's been there for four seasons now here's his ohio state resume so in his first season he bursts onto the scene with a surprise tied for second place in the big 10 you you gotta put that in context because the program had definitely slumped the last few years under thad motto with his health issues to an understandable it's 53 by the way i thought he was 70 no he's not and that's that was the real unfortunate thing about what happened with his with his back problems is he could have been at it another 20 years easy um and that's reportedly you know supposedly he was a candidate for indiana and there was a rumor that he wasn't able to pass a physical basically i i think that's been debunked i don't know if that's even remotely true but it wouldn't surprise you because back injuries don't get better um over time so anyway holman comes in first season ties for second place then in the next year with, again, basically the gap from the last couple model recruiting classes, they fall to a tie for eighth place. The last two years, they finished tied for fifth and then alone in fifth. This year, they made the final of the Big Ten tournament, but otherwise they have not gone past the quarters of that event, which historically had been an event that they dominated. They have you know five tournament wins in the Big Ten tournament. That's at second behind Michigan State. Um, so it's been an event they always do well in, but they've got the one final appearance, nothing else. And now in the big dance, he has this, this scarlet letter of a 15-2 upset around his neck to go with two previous losses in the round of 32. So I'm not saying he's under pressure now or that he deserves to be, but from the outside, this is a fan base that I think is used to expecting excellence. They certainly get it in football. Um, I think they're still pretty competitive in wrestling. Their hockey team is good. Um, look, if it's an athletic department with basically unlimited resources. Do you think if they go another year without putting something in the trophy case, whether that's a conference title, tournament title, or one to at least the second weekend of the tournament, that maybe there's a little bit of a hot seat for Chris Holtman? Is that a reasonable thing to suggest? It could be only... If they don't get there, they have to at least get close. It has to be like maybe they just got, you know, 
They, they, they couldn't hold the outside line coming off a of turn four, as opposed to we were three laps down with engine problems. Because this loss to Oral Roberts is, and I have no idea how everybody else feels. I know it's hard to imagine feeling worse about a loss than I do, but objectively, we'll get to you. this is the most hideous, like this is the most hideous, uh, you know, hideously coached, I guess, of those losses. Like this is the one that will stand as by far the biggest indictment of a coach. If you're talking about the single games that were lost in this tournament, because this was a, a case where the you know the game plan was obvious and the advantages were very clear. This is the first one of his games, looking at his record in the tournament, where it was an actual upset, right? It's I think I want to say that the 2018 run ended with a loss to Gonzaga, who was the number four, and I think Ohio State was the five. Um, I'm pretty sure as a, as the 11 seed in his second year in 2019, they beat Iowa State and then lost to I'm forgetting who it was. This is the first one where it's been Ohio State failing to live up to an NCAA tournament expectation. Now, a Big Ten championship or Big Ten tournament thing, I can't speak to the Ohio State basketball community. The only kind of fans of OSU basketball outside of now are new writer Maximum Sam. Um, who I'm familiar with are the one guy who thought that they needed to go back to playing in St. John's arena. So I don't know how much of a big Ohio state, like basketball advocacy crowd there is out there. I think this is certainly one loss where suddenly, you know, it's bad, obviously, and the sting ain't going to go away. And like a middle Tennessee kind of loss, we're going to be mocking it for, you know, for years to come, especially because it's to a team with a hilarious name. Right. Um, But the diff, but here's the difference. Okay. And I guess here's where Andrew's point is. Uh, Michigan State had been to the Final Four the previous year, and within a few years, they got right back there. And How will this story play yeah, out? He put, put a few conference titles in there as well. I, what I'm saying, I guess, is that thus far, Holtman has mostly gotten credit for how, like, an improvement in how the team looks, right? Because they haven't actually won anything that they weren't that they weren't doing in the last few years under Thad Mata. So. It's all been it's all been based on wow they really passed the eye test it looks like this is going the right way. Well, here's I the, the I think the bloom is off the rose after this. And and, and here's the thing it's going to be they're they're like top what are they they're twelfth in Ken Palm and of course they were a two seed that everybody had on the one line pretty late into the season they lost ten games this year. Yeah they they made fun of Tubby Smith at our, at, at Kentucky for that ten lost Tubby. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the expectations at Kentucky, I think, are such that you really shouldn't be losing 10 games there. It's just different, quick, but it's not Rutgers different. Yeah, just a quick reminder to everybody that Kentucky did not make the tournament this year. Um, in case this in case this episode has depressed you thoroughly and you want to turn and get a little sunbeam um, coming through the window. So anyway, like I said, I'm not saying fire Holtman. I'm not saying that he even deserves to be on the hot seat right now, but... I think this loss goes be. I don't think this is something that you laugh off as a fluke or an, oh man, that's embarrassing, but whatever, we'll get over it. Um, I think now you, if I'm an Ohio state basketball fan, I need to see something to compensate for this um, in the next year or two. I guess we'll see if that's realistic. That would be my take. That's, that's all just want to throw that out there. So we spoke about badge about certain losses that hang around your neck forever the next game we're going to talk about is interesting because the coach who face planted in the first round in this game already has one of those at the hands of arkansas pine bluff that's right we are now moving on to the purdue boilermakers oh, no, 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 no. 
Arkansas Little Rock. Arkansas Pine Bluff would be a hell of a loss. Oh, it was. No, you're right. Yeah. But, uh, oh, yeah, because Pine Bluff has been like one of the five worst teams in Division One forever. You're no, going to get right. every Boiler fan 69-420 tweeting at you constantly if you make that. Good. Decision. No, I, I hope what I want is to get the Purdue fans in here shouting, hey, actually, we lost in the first round to Arkansas Little Rock. <laughs> get it right. Please correct my mistake. I would love to hear from all of you. Um, no, you're right. I, I always get that mixed up, though, because for like – five years in a row MSU played Pine Bluff in the non-con so I tell like that's the first if you asked me off the top of my head where is the main University of Arkansas I'd probably say oh it's Pine Bluff um just because they're stuck in my head like they're covered with pine tar um so anyway one of the one of the four cities that I can name in Arkansas Pine Bluff Fayetteville Little Rock and Texarkana three I know because of college sports and the other one I know because of Smokey and the Bandit. This central Arkansas out of Conway, Arkansas erasure is disgusting to me. The Bears and the Bears are purple. Um, so anyway, I only, I only know that because a former roommate once started a dynasty in what was it, like NCAA 08, I think, the basketball game. Uh, v- very bad graphics. But anyway, that's how I know the Bears. Shout out to Conway, Arkansas. I know we've got, we do big numbers there. So Purdue. Um, they made the first, they had the first points of the game on a three from Jaden Ivy, and then they never led again. So this is kind of, this game has a very different feel to it. Honestly, of all the many bouquets of colossal upsets that our conference endured this past weekend, this is the one that most reminded me of Michigan State, Middle Tennessee State, where you go into it fairly confident. We saw plenty of takes from Purdue fans. Oh, never seen an easier road to the Sweet 16, free trip to the Sweet 16. Okay, um, how'd that go? Because it's one of those things where you get like a you know the first couple of minutes of a game if a team jumps out with energy and they're up by like six or eight points, it's like okay, well you know their adrenaline's gonna wear off, it's fine. But then there's a different kind of game where it's like you know these guys really look just as good as we do in a lot of ways. What's uh, what's the problem here? And then you get a key player in foul trouble, their star player gets warm. And uh, now you've got a problem, especially if you're playing from behind the whole game, because the longer that goes on, the more the belief shifts to the opposite bench. And star player's dad is wearing an airbrush sweatshirt. Oh, they were doomed. They were absolutely doomed. An airbrush sweatshirt with not only pictures of his of his son, but also all of his accomplishments and stats on it. Many accomplishments and stats, too. Um, But no, yeah, as soon as they showed that guy, because, you know, I, I came into this game late in the first half. And I don't think they, I mean, maybe I just missed it because I was getting up, doing our, moving around, doing other things. But it's whenever it was that I first saw the picture of, I think, um, shoot, what's the player's name? Davion something, right? I forget the player's name. Yes. I knew, I knew it was Shakespearean or Shakespearean adjacent. Um, so <laughs> as soon as they showed his dad, I was like, oh no, oh, it's over that's a wrap it's not it's not going to happen for purdue um it was one of those instances where i wish i was hooked up with the in-game gambling apps i would have bet the house on north texas to win at that point um it's i don't know this is the 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 only thing i thought was going to be interesting about this game going into it was that it was the punt game (laughs) big p versus unt I had a coffee mug that had a slightly different first letter on that. Uh... <laughs> uh, to be fair, the handle wasn't designed to be a C. 
I legitimately bought that mug. It's it got lost somewhere in Milwaukee. I think my now wife threw it away. But uh, see, that would be what I call a deal breaker. But we all got to make our choices. Exactly. So <laughs> looking at produced performance in this, really, there's no there's no more complex explanation. I don't think than they shot real bad. <laughs> That's you know. And did gonna, they did they just miss a lot of open shots? I didn't see a lot of this game. Did they just not put the ball in the hoop? I don't know how many open shots they got. I mean, look, part of it is certainly that in the first half, Travion Williams was in foul trouble. He'll give him two points. But look, they've had other games in the past where for that or other reasons, Williams is kind of a non-factor in the first half. And then he comes back and dominates in the second. And he got his. I think he, in the second half, scored like 12 or 14. And he made the basket to tie it up and force overtime. But then, you know, and again, I've mentioned, I know Thump that I've mentioned this game to you before, but Purdue forces overtime and then they go four and a half minutes without scoring. And that happened to Michigan State in the final of the Big Ten tournament against Wisconsin in 2015, where they were able to, they forced overtime, they had a lead, gave it up, and you could tell that's like, oh, they don't have anything left. Because <laughs> it was just, and there's nothing, there's, I don't know if there's a, another uniquely helpless feeling quite like that where, you know, the other team scores the first basket in overtime. It's like, okay, come on, come on. Gotta get this back. Gotta get this back. Okay. Turnover. Okay. No big deal. Just gotta. And then, but like maybe the other team doesn't even score right then. It's like, okay, now we got a chance. Come on, let's get this. You know, maybe we get three, take the lead, miss that shot. Okay, come on, here we go. And then it just goes on for another four minutes and the other team chips in another basket or two, but they don't have to. They could just dribble out every possession they have all over time. Here you go. Try to score again. Oh, you still didn't score. You just can't. I got an analogy. I recently found a game on the PS4 that, you know, when combined with the, you know, the right atmosphere does wonders for my anxiety. It's a train sim world and it's a very, very accurate uh, train simulator, which allows me to haul giant coal trains in my GP38s and uh, AC units as, as well. Let's see, uh, SD40s as the other one. So, um, but you know, due to a miscommunication over what in the hell my speed limit was on my way up this grade, I ended up just with my goddamn like you know 45 car long coal train stalled on a 1.7 percent grade, and there was nothing I could do because I couldn't get any traction. Uh, it was all I could do to stop the thing from sliding back down, but the, 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 the sand wasn't working. I tried all kinds of things. I was running around both of the units and was doing whatever the hell I could. I just couldn't, nothing worked. I could spin the wheels and go forward and then they'd keep spinning and put me right back where I was. Did you try having Jade and Ivy, Ivy shoot uh, 12 threes and just I I did not because I did not purchase the Jaden Ivy DLC for this one. Well, if it makes you feel any better, that wouldn't have worked either. Well, they also were hideous from the line. And this was one of those moments where, you know, between this and Ohio State, I was just comfortably, you know, whistling past the graveyard as Big Ten teams struggled (laughs) from the free throw line and losses, thinking, (laughs) surely my team's not going to do that. But guess what? They didn't! It didn't even matter. They went ten for thirteen. Well, yeah, one of their best free throw performances of the year. Purdue was ten for fourteen. They did it, and they finally did it. The the point about Ivy taking that many shots is what? Because again, we just commented with Dwayne Washington, where look, there comes a point you gotta know when you don't have it. But it's also fair to say nobody else or Purdue had it either. I mean, the biggest issue I had with 
Washington's shot selection in the Ohio State loss is that Liddell was having an efficient night. And yes, I know he had a couple of bad possessions down the stretch, but still, I think you want the ball in his hand a little more. He did nail a three as it was just a little too late as well. Yeah, Purdue though, I mean, looking at the other guy, like Isaiah Thompson hit three out of five threes, but other than that, you know, Wheeler 0 for 2, Newman 0 for 2, Hunter 0 for 4. Um, Travion Williams got most of it, got all his points in the paint, but he's shooting below 50% as a guy who takes all his shots inside of six feet from the basket. So Jaden Ivey's the one who's going to stick out and get criticism from the fan base and, you know, from guys like us for jacking up all these shots, but somebody has to take them. Um, That's very true. Look at at hell. I mean, they have, I mean, Travion Williams almost had a double, double just with offensive rebounds. I mean, that's another team, another one of those lopsided uh, rebounding imbalances and, they have 20 offensive rebounds and a possible 44. I mean, that's they did exactly what you would expect Purdue to do. But to get back to the original kind of explanation you had, yeah, they just, I mean, they just didn't shoot the ball well. Yeah. And some of that, to be fair, like with the offensive rebound low percentage, some of that is basically Trayvon Williams playing volleyball with himself off the backboard. But, um, you know, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where you kind of scratch your head and, I'm, I don't know how Purdue fans feel about this because, again, I'm not on Twitter and I'm much happier for it. But I wonder because towards the end of this season, again, they, they got the double buy in the Big Ten tournament, probably did a lot better than most people expect them to. They've got this very young core. Um, I mean, really, they only have two guys who are even juniors. Who, oh, three. I guess I forgot about Hunter and Wheeler. Four. Um, so they've got a handful of upperclassmen, but nobody who's leaving for the draft this year, most likely. And then this group of freshmen who they're not the baby boilers, but they certainly look like they're going to be the foundation of your team for a couple of years. So I think things were mostly looking up. And then because you overachieve, you get a four seed. And now when you lose in the first round, it's this kind of ugly upset. I, w- I kind of wonder what the perspective is now. Um, but, you know. It's not even on the medal stand in terms of worst losses the conference took this weekend. So there's that. Well, I mean, it is still what were they? There were four. So that is still pretty bad. And again, this was North Texas was, I believe, Ken Palm 70 something. So again, not at all like the deal where we're about to talk about, which is, of course, Illinois fighting Illini. So. I'm, I'm, you beat I'm Drexel gonna, easy. That was good. I'm gonna say this: that you were, we were talking about Purdue fans saying, "Oh, never had such an easy run to the Sweet 16." And I said something similar that our region was set up for Illinois to go to the Final Four if and only if they could sneak by the fucking Midgar Zalem that the NCAA selection committee decided to put right outside of the first fucking town we spawned in. It's a deep cut, and I love it. That um, was, that was, in fact, the uh, twenty-four and four, twenty-three and four at the time. I think Loyola Ramblers, uh, headed by Cameron Crutwig, who I realized looks like a tremendous player, and I can't knock his aesthetic. It's just that somebody pointed out how much he looks like Farva from Super Troopers, and I can't unsee well, it. He kind of does, yeah, for sure. I can't for sure, unsee for sure. it. But he's um, he's also. Pro, he's also a four-year player, a program centerpiece, and a guy who was integral to a Final Four run as a freshman. Um, now he's a senior, and this team around it again. You first of all, you blame you bear no blame here because you were appropriately afraid of this team when we discussed the matchups going into the tournament. You oh, I this said was this was by far the biggest game. threat to Illinois before the Final Four by a wide yeah. margin. Because there for was the no reasons one... that we mentioned. 
And if we beat them, there was a good chance, right? So we would have gotten Oregon State, and then we might have played in the Elite Eight. We were very close to playing the winner of fucking Rutgers Syracuse. Yeah, that um, could have happened. <laughs> a fucking Big East reunion yeah. tour. So what happened was basically the uh, the game started and then it ended immediately. By the time it was nine to two at the under four timeout, the game was extremely over. And uh, I'm not the best X's and O's guys, X's and O's guy on here. The Malord is starting to catch up to me already. But I'm not the best X's and O's guys on here. I merely knew that Illinois was seeing the exact same things and somehow not figuring out a way to stop it and then kept trying to do the same things on offense, even as it, you know, generally continued to not work so well. Evan Wildcat, I assume you watched this one. So one thing that I want to say. I'd like to explain it in great detail just so that everybody can know the extent to which Brad Underwood with two fucking all Americans got his fucking lunch money stolen. Do you, <laughs> I'm going to get through maybe 30 seconds of this and I know the thumb's not done. Um, I was really impressed. One of the things where we all ran their pick and rolls from um, when they would bring Crutwig up and, uh, and have him set a pick for any one of the guards was not so much at the top of the key. They were doing it free throw line extended to the side. And they were usually doing it on the far side of the court. So the ball handler is coming around on his right hand into the lane. And Crut would, would turn and just kind of roll back down the side of the paint. And this was where instead of bringing Kofi out to hedge, they were kind of having Kofi get caught in this no man's lane. And he wasn't moving well side to side. I was really, really interested by how Moser, I mean, for all the defensive stuff that he did as well, kind of shutting down Illinois, I, I thought it was a really interesting way of, of getting Krutwig activated and also playing on, it doesn't look like, I, maybe I just hadn't watched enough Kofi this year, he didn't move well side to side. And I don't know if it's maybe he intimidates ball handlers who are coming straight at him from the top of the key, but I think Loyola shifting the point of attack and how they went after Illinois was a really unique way of, of kind of turning this game on its head. Well, here's what Kofi's game is defensively, okay? He is an area denial weapon. He is way more effective when he does not attempt to block shots, when he doesn't even leave his feet. He just stand, he, he just gets in the way of any big people trying to drive to the basket and just is bigger. Uh, and that's and he's been very effective doing that. They found a way around it to to basically just get him out of position. For instance, Nana Egwu absolutely locks down Loyola in this game. Um, but obviously, he, he doesn't have the offensive capabilities that Kofi does, nor the enormousness. Jordi Bashanishvili was in the game for quite a while as they were. The other thing is Kofi got winded near the end of this one. Uh, in fact, on a run this morning. Uh, really, really trying to get back in the habit of doing that. I, I thought to myself that I could have cut it off and had still my longest run since I moved here, but it was still half a mile before I meant to to to, to quit. And then I thought of uh, an exhausted Kofi trying to chase down Crutwig uh, at the end of the game, and I was like, no, I will catch Giant Farva. I will not quit on the play. Oh, man. And I made it, but... Uh, but the thing is, Georgie was in there and try and be a more agile defender, but he's just never been a good post defender. The place where he's really good on defense was what they were running in Brad Underwood's first two years, which was an abject disaster, except it would have been really good here. And I don't understand why we didn't do the pressure defense. We wasted two whole goddamn years 
on that system, you know, losing well, you, you game also, after game after game. And we didn't even try to press of any kind until there was under two minutes to go. And then it was the saddest press I've ever seen. Like Loyola oh, was what? pressing harder than us with two minutes to go. Right. But you, you didn't go to the press because you thoroughly scrap it. Like the reason Illinois turned their program around, in addition to getting IO and Kofi, is that you abandoned this defense, which was an utter disaster in Underwood's first two years. So why didn't they go back to the thing that they used to do that was an at was a tire fire every time they did it? I think that kind of answers itself. Um, the score look, doesn't the score doesn't speak to how bad the defense was because in the second half, every Loyola possession was just dribble, 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 get some dudes out of position, one second on the shot clock, foul, drain both free throws. Like yeah, but and, that's I mean that's masterful game planning though. That's, it, it is, but I'm saying look, it's, they it's could really have had a hundred points if that was what their objective was. That wasn't their objective. They were just trying to basically sim to the end of the game. Um, if they had run at a pace where they scored a hundred points, they could have given up hundred and ten to Illinois. They I'm, I'm being I'm exaggerating. My point is the extent to which they imposed their will made it made it a little bit surprising that we didn't try something desperate in the closing minutes but on the other hand i know that underwood's only move in game is yo louder well look i i don't know how realistic it is to ask your team to go back to a defense that you scrapped almost two full years ago it, it just especially mid-game in an elimination game and like the odds that it would have worked against a veteran team like Loyola seem pretty minimal. I think the adjustment um, about a halftime with it. That's that's where I thought the adjustment should have been. Yeah, I guess if you have a little bit more time to try to implement something like that, it might have worked. But the flip side of this is, look, Loyola has been an elite defensive team all year. Um, your your point about the tempo is absolutely taken, but we also know from recent experience it is easier to slow a game down as your opponents will than to speed it up. So you're going to pay, you're going to play at the pace that the slower team wants to play at. That's what it works for Virginia. Well, the one time it did. Um, Not this year. Yeah. That's how Texas tech has, has had success the last couple of years uh, because it's, if you play a slow style, you can force teams to pay your pace. If you play fast and the other team doesn't want to, there are ways they can stop you. So that's the one thing we said stylistically. The other, honestly, is that for a pair of upperclassmen guards who have done a lot of great things in their Illinois careers, neither Iota Stunmu nor Trent Frazier had anything resembling a game no, that was acceptable. They had their worst games as a line-eye. Trent Frazier channeled his inner Dimitri McCamey, uh, which loved Dimitri McCamey. He went right. one for 10 in their in his last game ever against uh, one seed Kansas. Um yeah. With me in attendance and uh, and Iota Sumo, I mean, a lot of this is credit to Loyola because their game plan was very focused on bothering him, taking away the things that he could do well. But it wasn't just them. I mean, frankly, the only two people, three people that showed up to play for Illinois at all were Andre Curbelo, uh, Adam Miller, and Demonte Williams. Uh, Williams didn't get a whole lot of tick. Curbelo played his ass off, has never been that great of a defender, but also got hurt late in the game um and miller i don't understand why they didn't find him more because he was actually hitting threes uh but it was tough for them to find anyone loyola was getting in all the passing lanes and and really putting a lot of pressure on io whenever he whenever he stepped over the half court line really um of course turnover the most unbelievable thing was 
in the first few minutes of the game, Jacob Grandison just basically threw two pick sixes on consecutive possessions that were so bad. I just laughed, um, honestly. And, and, you know, Io Desumu has not been the same since he got hurt. I really don't think that he's been 100%, but that's got nothing to do with why we lost. Um, yeah, I, right. I well, his, his shooting hasn't been what it was. His vision hasn't been what it was, but yeah, the state Io Desumu was in was still good enough for Illinois to make that run through the Big Ten tournament. He damn near uh, had a triple-double against Rutgers in the quarterfinals of the Big Ten tournament. I mean, you don't get to pick and choose – and throw out the data points when he was every bit as good as his old self. I get you're looking for someone else to pin this on. If it's no, got nice, I'm so absolutely close. not. But I'm saying, there's a reason they played him 33 minutes against Drexel. I think it was because his shooting accuracy had just not been that great since he came back. He was making a lot of layups against Rutgers and stuff. But I, I, I mean, I noticed this. I said this several times in the Big Ten tournament. I said, is, 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 is I, okay, you know, again, they had a, a lot of minutes for their starters against Drexel, but especially for Ayodesumu that were unnecessary. I thought it was just to get him comfortable. And again, and again, all we're talking about is maybe the difference between he goes out like Luca Garza in a, in, in a clear loss that they were never going to win where he maybe posts a better stat line. Or maybe, maybe, maybe best case scenario, a situation where we get heartbroken instead of just slowly strangled. Either way, I mean, we could play that game another 10 times and not even get within double digits. It was that was a hell of a transition opportunity you created for the Hawkeyes in their first round matchup had the most heartfelt support I've ever felt for them as they played Desert Liberty, also known as Grand Canyon. Um, They handled them pretty handily. I mean, it was a 12 point final margin, but that involved, if I recall correctly, a little bit of a late game push from Grand Canyon to close the margin. Um, Iowa was in control for most of this game. Grand Canyon plays kind of a, apparently sort of a similar style to them, although not nearly as fast paced. So about the only interesting thing there was that Grand Canyon had Asbjörn Midgard. Asbjörn um, Midgard! Foot, very seven foot Viking looking guy who theoretically gave guard. I mean, he gave guards a little bit of a fight in the first half. They both had foul trouble, but then after halftime, that was not an issue. And around Garza, Iowa really pulled away. Misfortune strikes in that Iowa's second round matchup is with Oregon. What happened to Oregon in their first round game? Well, they got a no contest because VCU booted from the tournament on account of the COVID. The only team in the entire field that ended up with too many positive tests to continue. I was and shocked so- that one team and only one team did. I figured it would be either zero or like five or six in multiple rounds. Yeah. Although it's not, it's not yeah. over yet. Oddly enough, it seems in my opinion, really disrespectful for there to continue to be games now. Like I just can't believe how insensitive they're being in playing these games. It's way too fucking soon. Well, what money machine go burr. I, I mean, if you thought they were going to really meaningfully you know, cancel games because of that, that they didn't oh, uh, have no. to. I mean, it's way too soon after my team lost the worst game of their turn in, tournament existence. It's way too soon. But, oh, sure. Uh, <laughs> but, but again, like I said, it, you know, misery loves company. You didn't have to wait very long for somebody else to join you in, in the, in the pit of, in the pit of misery. So misery loves company again, as long as they bring meth because you know, Missouri, <laughs> <laughs> well, then you've got the right mates in Iowa there. Oh, man. 
So th- this was going to be a difficult matchup for Iowa regardless yep. because I do think Oregon is one of the teams that has suffered from kind of the reduced exposure. I mean, the Pac-12 has had onerous rules on athletics. Pac-12 is always kind of an afterthought in the national media anyway because so much of it's still based on the East Coast. Yeah, because they're four, because they're three hours behind us. That's literally the reason. Right. Understandable. But you live in a date and time now where would it really be so difficult to plug in some people on the West Coast to cover, you know, that whole third of the country anyway. um, And that, by the way, may explain a little bit of how the Pac-12 has gotten four teams to the Sweet 16, despite only getting five in the tournament. Another part of that is that UCLA and Oregon State are getting a little bit of a random number generator vibe to him here but anyway we digress so the problem for Iowa in this game is again you've got one of these box scores where it's like oh yeah okay I see how that works and if you give up 56 points in the first half of a tournament game well let me flip this on its head actually if you score 46 points in the first half of a tournament game you should feel pretty good you shouldn't be down by double digit and this is why I don't think there's any dispute anymore there is a ceiling on what Fran is capable of doing with this program. And if he hasn't hit it, there's not a whole lot of clearance left. Uh, just uh, at some point, you have to get the hand Jay Figueroa's face. At some point, I mean, you know, it, it always kind of turns into the joke because I, you know, I has a fancy online and stuff, and everybody has the best shooting night of the season against us. At some point, <laughs> every team has their best fucking shooting night of the season against you. Maybe your defense blows. It, I, I, and look, man, I mean, Iowa doesn't usually expect to get no production out of C.J. Frederick and limited production out of Wieskamp and almost nothing out of Jordan Bohannon in, in that lineup. And I, just for the love of God, play defense. I mean, it, it can't be this hard when you have but the length and some of the ability that they do, that they just completely flip off. I mean, what one of our writers was referring to this as just a glorified layup contest. And I mean, this, this is, a, yeah, this is another one of the weirder box scores you'll see, because you mentioned they didn't get much from either Frederick or No, they got zero. <laughs> if you look at this box score, I, I don't know how many college basketball games you're going to see where a team scores 80 points, but three starters score zero. They got zero from Frederick, zero from Bohannon, nothing from Connor McCaffrey, 36 from Garza, and 17 from Wieskamp. And then they had guys on the bench chip in the rest. That being said, if you said that, if you said a team scored 80 and three of their starters scored zero, I would have guessed that the other team scored about 100, which they did. Fair enough, and they did. And you again, there's no question that the day off, that basically not having a play gave Oregon an advantage because they were able to lean on their starters for huge minutes. You know, part of the reason that Oregon is a little bit underrated is because Richardson, one of their better players, missed a good portion of the season. Well, he played 40 minutes in this game. Um, All their starters were over 30 minutes, and they only got six points out of their bench. So it's another, it's just, this is one of, it's just such a weird game. The scoring was so concentrated. Oregon only got six out of their bench. Iowa got zero points from three of their starters just a strange game, but you're never going to see anything like it. And again, I've alluded this to this in the past. I think at this point, the argument's kind of over because we know what Iowa's season ended up being, but look, that's the best player in program history, Jersey hanging in the rafters. And what do you have to show for it? You have a big 10 tournament semifinal appearance and a couple of first weekend exits from the tournament. That's what you got. I don't yeah, know what you're the, doing here. 
if you're, I mean, if you're, if you're okay, if, if you're okay with keeping Fran at this point, you're okay with never winning anything. Because that's not the difference between what Iowa did and what Illinois and Ohio State did is that their coaches have only been there like four years. Um, this is steady state, Fran. And this was not supposed to be like a, a building towards something year. Not that it was supposed to be a building year for those guys, but the point is that the program momentum is still, you could say, on the upswing for those guys, Underwood and Holtman. For, for Fran, it's like this was supposed to be the climax of the Fran McCaffrey era. Yeah, but you know the weird thing And is, it ended actually, so predictably. I'm sorry. I'm yeah, sorry. It ended it? so predictably. We've been saying... I mean, I've been saying that, it, that it's going to end like this, partially because it's, you know, fun to make Iowa fans get really pissed off, but also partially because it's not unprecedented. It no, wasn't I mean, surprising. There was, there was always going to be a point. It was going to end exactly that way, not yeah, necessarily they're, they're in that round. They're going to give up infinity points to some team that was good enough to do it. If it wasn't Oregon, they're in Gonzaga's bracket. So that would have <laughs> happened this weekend, if not last. Um, yeah. I, look, again. I actually think they could still be pretty good next year. Um, I really liked Sanji, what we saw from him in relief of Garza. And granted, he was going against some pretty beat up front lines who had already given up, you know, eight or 10 fouls to Garza. But I like the guards. I, you know, Keegan Murray was very good as a freshman this year in a normal season, probably would have been the freshman of the year, but you have Hunter Dickinson. So mm-hmm. um, it's not that it's not to say that Iowa is going to be a terrible program or they're going to fall off a cliff. Um, but man, I think given the result this year, keeping franchises that you're okay with being just another team in this conference, because it's unlikely they're going to be this good again anytime soon. And they have nothing to show for this season, in my opinion. So very least Illinois got a banner of some kind. This is what I was afraid of when I got so mad about that weird regular season title thing. Right. But uh, yeah, you know, that's the ultimate thing is, you know, at the, there's there's not that many tangible things up for grabs in any given basketball season and you can have a really great season and get none of them and that's what Iowa did yeah okay so to wrap up here I'm gonna throw a take out there that again I, I have some support for and I wonder what you're gonna think about it um obviously the Big Ten relative to how we talked about the conference all season this was a very poor showing for the conference and you could very well chuck it up to, well, look at a single elimination format, weird stuff's going to happen, bad matchups, yada, yada. And all that's well and good. Yep. Don't do it. Preposterous seating choices. Don't do it. There were a couple of those. And I'm not saying that this. Celebrity nuns having a better handle on the scouting report than our goddamn head coach. Yeah, that might, that might not have helped. I'm going to venture the opinion that the way Big Ten refs officiate the games this season put the conference's teams at a disadvantage because the change between how they do it and how everybody else does was more dramatic. Why do I think this? I'm going to unhighlight this little box of information that I put into the outline. I think you guys can both see that now, right? At the very bottom. You never shared it with me, so fuck you. Oh, all right. I'll just read it off for you then. I'm going to tell you the number of turnovers that each Big Ten team had in their loss. And why do I think this correlates to officiating? Well, because when you call every minor little contact in the game all season as a foul, guys get accustomed to drawing fouls on every contact. 
And so when they get hammered by some opposing player in a game and the ball comes loose, they're used to play stopping and they're not used to the other team being able to take the ball and go the other way with it. So let's go through turnovers committed by team. We'll start with the low end, which was Maryland at eight in their elimination game. It's an Alabama team that bombed their lights out anyway. So although they didn't turn the ball over much, that's a game where it didn't really matter. Everybody else had double-digit turnovers. Purdue had 11. Iowa and Michigan State both had 12. Rutgers had 13. Wisconsin had 14. Ohio State had 16. And Illinois had 17. I will go ahead and say I don't think Illinois uh, had this specific problem because so many of their turnovers were on passes, right, where they just forced really bad passes. There were a few times when I was just instinctively like, oh my God, I can't believe that's not a foul on our guard. And then I remember that I've watched Big Ten basketball, but I don't think that's as much of a factor here. Sure. For and that so specific I'm, data point. For that specific data point. But it, I'm still thinking that 17 turnovers is a little bit above Illinois season average. Am I right there? Slightly. Although we turn the ball over a lot. Yeah, and granted, Michigan State does too. Um, I think Ohio State generally has a few turnovers as well. But that's my impression, and I'm sticking by it. Again, I'm not saying that a more reasonable officiating performance would necessarily have made the difference, but it would have been a more enjoyable game to watch. Here's the, here's the flip side of that coin. Even with all these losses, did you not find these tournament games more enjoyable to watch than the typical Big Ten contest where you've got teams shooting in the double bonus with 11 minutes to go? I sure, I sure found this band of, brand of basketball a lot better to watch. And it's not like the physicality ends up throwing teams off their game, by the way. You've still got you get, you've got all kinds of ranges of scores. You have playing games between 16s, played in the 50s. You have games in the 70s, games in the 80s, games in the 90s. This notion that if you allow some contact, every game is going to turn into Virginia versus Wisconsin is just not true. We saw that in this tournament. We see it in tournaments in the past. So I stand by my opinion that the quality of Big Ten officiating, and in particular, the tight whistles they deploy, has put the conference at a competitive disadvantage. I would like to submit theory that the Big Ten's advanced stats profile as a conference was wildly overinflated by the very small sample sizes in interconference play this year. Very possible. Um, because it's just hard to compare. You know, we kept hearing that this was one of the toughest basketball conferences ever, but we should never have taken any stock into that because how do you compare this year to any other year? Same thing with football, right? Football had so little non-conference play. How do you compare 2020 to any other year? Because the the data sets are just so wonky and so weird, and there's so little overlap in them. There's so little, uh, I guess, cohesion to the entire 351-team data set. I would like to submit a different uh, data point, more in keeping with the off-tackle empire tradition of, yeah, but your team. And that is when you have a conference that has had a certain angry midget from the UP screaming for 25 years that any contact on his player is a foul. When you have a conference which Bo Ryan has taken, has spent decades or spent decades, thank God he's dead or God knows where else now, uh, berating officials that, that anything is a, it's con, you know, it's contact on a badger is a foul. Uh, when you have Matt Painter acting fat and incredulous on the sidelines, that the I mean that's not an act, but <laughs> the way in which the contact is is officiated and is dealt with in the conference is the conference's own fault. 
that if we if we want to subscribe to this idea that it is in fact the way that it's refed, and I don't think that Iowa forgetting how to defend a fucking three point shooter is the fault of Bo Borowski, no matter how much every Hawkeye fan on Twitter wants to say, oh well, the game's lost because Bo's refing our game. No, the game's lost because you can't defend L.J. fucking Figueroa while he's shooting a three pointer. Stop pointing the finger at, at at how at the referees and this frustration with Iowa fans, but. I don't think our point is necessarily inharmonious, though. Those things can both be true. If the yeah, I, the the rest the games are called a certain way in Big Ten play in part because of a string of highly tenured, highly persuasive coaches. I think ultimately, the argument is you can't let the same guys ref your conference for years and years and years on end anymore because they get into these patterns. And coaches, and coaches know what buttons they can push. There's an interesting point there, to be sure. I, you know, I think there there are moments, in particular, the Greg Gard tantrum that he threw on Zoom, uh, trying to defend the dirtiest player since uh, since Chris Kramer, Aaron Kraft in this conference. Um, punish it. I, the, if T is a up, it's you know T T guard up. Just don't tolerate this behavior, and maybe you. You know, maybe you can do something about that. I and there's also the matter of that the fouls that are called are so often fouls around the perimeter, where fouls in the lane uh, can sometimes go uncalled to the point where the game starts to let's use Izzo's turn of phrase resemble a street fight. So you have more fouls called in the perimeter, and you have less fouls called inside, and and all in all, it's. uh, it's just a weird balance. I tend to find the inverse to be true. I think they let hand checking go to a ludicrous extent in our content in our conference most of the time. Um, but you know, the other the thing that we that we learned this year, and we've talked about this before, beyond dispute, is that without the crowd noise, without the band playing, boy, you can hear every every coach on every team at every level that makes it onto TV is working the refs the entire game. This is not a phenomenon that's unique to the Big Ten. Again, I, you know, the venerability and the tenure of some of those coaches, Izzo included, sure, um, may make it worse in the Big Ten than it Izzo is. Izzo chief also. among them. Let's be clear about that. Well, I mean, Bo Ryan's gone now. But, I mean, yeah, I, so I, I do think you got one little thing wrong in that. What he mostly argues is that whatever his players do on defense is not a foul, which I tend to think is wrong more of the time than not. Um, but anyway. One Luther Olsen. I, I, still think, I still think the better approach here – is to shuffle the officiating out more often. Um, again, I'm not saying, I don't think any of us are, that that's going to make, the, the, that that would have prevented the conference from going full Hindenburg in this tournament. But there was there's such a jarring difference between what we saw in the regular season, what we usually see in the regular season, and what we see in the tournament. I want more of our games to look like tournament games, ultimately. And I'd love for our conference to do better in the tournament. This isn't the first phase plan we've had. I mean, it's the worst we've had in recent memory. But I want more tournament play in our regular season. And if it's more, if our regular season is more similar to the tournament, we'll do better. We won't have another 20 year title drought, which by the way, is now going to be pushed up to 21. So anyway, that's about all there is to it. We got one team left to keep our eye on. So next week's episodes will probably be much, much shorter, but we thank you for joining us here on the blocking charge cast. Any final thoughts as we sign off? Good Lord. You, you mean there's going to be more episodes after this? How? Yeah we, yeah, we might just zone out. I mean, this is an Oregon Beavers podcast now. Oregon State Beavers. Oh, Oregon Beavers. Oh, my oh, God. Oh, my. Now we're gonna get the. We have to, I have to learn. Holy! It also might be the crawler of eight percent beer I've put away since we started doing this. So, <laughs> have a good night, everybody. No! <laughs>
source for Big Ten Talk. It's Off Tackle Empire.